Welcome to the Readings Kids Book Podcast, a monthly podcast where we talk about anything and everything related to the world of children's books and bookselling. I'm Leanne Hall, a children's and YA bookseller and author. And I'm Angela Crocom, a bookseller and occasional author. Today we are going to talk about our favourite books of the year, um, from babies all the way through to teens, and then we have a really wonderful interview for you with Monuments author Will Kostakis, Um, so hang around for that at the end. But to begin with, we're going to just try and do sort of a whistle-stop tour (laughs) of all of our favourite books of the year, which is basically torture, I would say, (laughs) for a bookseller to keep it this succinct. Angela, um, I know that this is a difficult task. It is. It is. These aren't all my favourites, of course, because it is a bumper crop of books this year. Yeah. I really think there is just so many great books out there um, that it's really hard to choose. Very difficult to choose. I think if we were going to be really comprehensive about this, we'd probably need six hours or so. But <laughs> and nobody's going to listen to that. No one wants to listen to us for six hours. So <laughs> we're going to try and keep it really, really short and sweet. So we've, we've made some difficult decisions. Um, so, Angela, would you like to kick things off in considering books for babies? Sure. Um, I think what you want in a baby book, something sturdy, something simple, rhythmic, uh, a lot of fun with really bright visuals. And a book that just hits the nail on the head for that is Boo by Margaret Wilde and Andrew Joyner. It's just a perfect baby book. It's um, little, little kids playing Boo to their little teddies. What could be more fun? And, uh, yeah, they've just, you know, very experienced team and they've just done it so well. Uh, My other favourite one is Animals by, I'm probably not going to pronounce this correctly, Chihiro Takeuchi, um, which is the second one in a lovely series of board books from Burbank. I was trying to remember what the first one was because I was so taken with it when I arrived in now. There we go, it's colours. Yeah, and they're just really clever, really visually stimulating their little search and find there they have a little cutout on the page and just beautiful beautiful images of animals I would kill I think to see Takauchi's studio because if Mm. that's all the artwork is done by paper I can't imagine I can't even imagine how intricate the type of work would be um, to construct those illustrations that's a really beautiful one yeah how about you Leanne so I would say my pick um also, I think these ones are kind of fit what you've said is they're very bold, they're very simple, they're done in board book style. Um, my my favourite is Becky Orpen's Dressing Your Family and Moving Your Body. So they're two board book titles. Um, Becky Orpen's a really wonderful Australian illustrator, artist, designer, um, and these are just really, really simple good-looking books featuring just everyday kids um, doing activities and getting dressed. Um, I always think that there's a lack. Like, you know, you sometimes notice a little gap in the market. Mm. And for babies, I think that there's not enough haircut books and not enough <laughs> not enough getting dressed and like your yeah, clothes. Yeah, books. which is so important and so difficult for a little one as well. Yeah, it forms like a really sort of big part of their yeah. their day is probably resisting getting dressed. <laughs> That's right. So I think Becky Orpens are, are, are great for this and the illustrations are just so cute, full of very, very sturdy, adorable babies mm. in those in those pictures. Yep. Yep, definitely. Uh, okay, picture books. And oh my goodness, how many gorgeous picture books are there? I feel like it was there? a very, very wow. good year for picture books. Yeah. I feel like it was a really, um, 
good year for Indigenous picture books. I feel mm. like that there was all of a sudden just this huge amount of really fantastic um, picture books written and illustrated by Aboriginal Australians. So that was really nice to yeah, see. Yeah. So which are your favourite Indigenous ones, Leanne? I think, look, it's really hard to pick, but I think Jasmine Seymour's two picture books, beginning with um, Baby Business was her first mm. one. And then Kui Mitagar is the most recent one. Um, Kui Mitagar um is the newer one and it's really fantastic. You kind of um, follow Mulgo, who is um, Black Swan. Um, you follow him through all these different um, seasons in Darug country, which is in um, the Sydney, Greater Sydney Basin area. Mm. So you meet all sorts of wildlife. And I also didn't know much about how complicated the seasons could be in this country. And you, it's not just like, you know, summer, autumn, spring, winter, that sort of thing. You actually see a much more granulated version of the season and and what happens in that season. So that's that's my pick, one of mm. my picks. Yeah. Amazing. I also have to do a shout out to uh, Auntie Joy Murphy and Lisa Kennedy's latest one, uh, Willam, A Birrarung Story. Uh, and I feel like for every Melbourneian or person who lives near the Yarra River, this is like a must-have picture book um, and, you know, works quite to a quite old age, sort of eight or ten really. It's just a beautiful journey of uh, Birrarung, the Yarra River, from its uh, origins in the mountains all the way through to the city. And um, there's characters from the present day as well as from the past and a lot of uh, Woiwurrung language in it as well. Yeah, it's really nice to see um, First Nations languages being used in yes. picture books really, really yes. seamlessly. Um, yeah. I think that's been a definite kind of thing that I've noticed mm, this year that I've yeah. really, really in, appreciated. In the year of Indigenous languages well, even. so appropriate. It is. Yeah. Um, I just want to do a very quick shout out to a book that I think has flown, a picture book that has flown a little bit under the radar, and that is Brenda is a Sheep by Morag Hood. Um, Brenda is not a sheep. Brenda <laughs> appears to be a wolf. But Brenda is hanging out with a whole bunch of sheep and talking about dinner a lot and is up to all sorts of suspicious things. So um, that's just a really funny, good read out loud one. Uh, some colleagues have tried that on their babies and it worked marvellously. So, yeah. Angela, do you have any other picture book recommendations? Uh, yes, I do love Little Star by Mem Fox and Freya Blackwood. I just think it's absolutely stunning and kind of follows the journey of a life from being born through to death essentially but is handled in such a beautiful way and I remember I always that so the main character um is is a baby at the beginning and then becomes a tiny little old person and it reminds me of when my daughter was young I used to tell her that you're little now and I look after you but one day I'll be little and you'll have to look after me such a trippy concept <laughs> <laughs> actually my parents remind me about that a lot as well still mm -hmm. and yeah it's just really magical I did read a really um nice blog post by Mem on um, her website about why she wrote um, this book. And it was really mm. lovely. The birth of her grandchild really made her think about how her own mortality would affect this new baby mm. that became so attached to her and, and yeah. her to the baby. So, um, yeah, that was a really nice post. Yeah, definitely. And uh, another picture book that I think is great for parents or kids who really love a lot of facts 
cats in their stories is Antarctica by Moira Court, uh, which is a beautiful book about all the animals that live in Antarctica. It's a counting book. It's a numbers book. And it's a very uh, informative book about what it's like in Antarctica and who lives there. Hmm, I feel like that might be another recent trend um, is the picture book that also delves into facts, like this kind of hybrid mm. between nonfiction and picture book where you get this sort of perfect balance between facts yeah. and a beautiful picture book. Yep. I, I can't now, of course I can't think off the top of my head which other ones I've seen, but I do feel like that's a, a newish thing that I've seen more and more of this year. Mm. Yeah. Yep. That's great. Uh, that's and and of course we have to mention the Davina Bell, all of the factors. Why well, I love tractors. Yeah, the rhyme in that is perfect. There's really like an insatiable thirst for tractors <laughs> and vehicle related stuff <laughs> for all kids at a certain age. It's, it seems, yeah, they they can't get enough really. <laughs> so um, let's let's move up another age group. We're going to talk about junior fiction now, which we sort of really use to kind of refer to sort of six ish, seven ish, all the mm. way through to around about eight ish. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah. Those early chapter books for those kids who are just getting a handle on reading and starting to feel more confident and it's so important to support them and give them fun books that they love to read and really kind of instill that lifelong love of learning in them. Uh, so what are your picks for that age group? Well, I've, I've just got one pick and I picked this one because it's such an unusual book. It's called Under the Stars, Astrophysics for Bedtime by Lisa Harvey Smith. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's it's astrophysics done as bedtime stories, which you would imagine do not work at all, but actually <laughs> this really works very well. So Lisa Harvey Smith is an astrophysicist um, herself. She's a professor and um, she's covered all sorts of sort of space and astrophysics and cosmic and universal scientific concepts, but written them in a really approachable way for, I would say, around about ages six and up. So explaining light and gravity, um, explaining um, the solar system. Um, and it's it's hard to describe, but they're just done so well. And they do, they're very sciencey. Like you do get like mm. the scientific theory across and you learn to understand certain processes. But actually you're also invited to imagine and dream about things. Like one of my favourite ones is where you're asked, the child in the bedrooms, bedtime stories asked to think about how would you feel as an astronaut sitting inside your rocket wow. waiting for the launch. And it really <laughs> takes you inside like how nervous and excited you would be. Yeah, um, so cool. that would be my pick. And they're beautifully illustrated and I think it's a really unusual and gorgeous book. Mm. And that yeah. would, could be read to at bedtime to younger readers as well, I couldn't think it? so. I mean, I think it could be read to a four-year-old quite easily and then mm. it could be read independently for, you know, really, I mean, some of the some of the concepts that are discussed are quite sophisticated. So I imagine, you know, a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old yeah. could, I mean, I as an adult, um, not having a science brain, found it at a really nice level for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> um, you had a few junior favourites, didn't you? Some yeah, nice, I, I do. gorgeous, illustrated hardcover titles this year. Yes. So um, a beautiful one called Wild Honey from the Moon by a guy called Kenneth Craigle, which is just so gorgeous. It's the very pretty. Yeah, the illustrations yeah. are just incredible. And there are lots of little short stories about a little 
baby shrew, and you don't often, often get stories about shrews. No, I, no you don't. <laughs> kind of looks neglected like a shrew. Yeah, it kind of looks like a bear. So, yeah. um, but uh, baby shrew is very sick, and Mama Shrew doesn't know what's causing it, but is told that wild honey from the moon will fix baby shrew's ailment. So off she goes on a, an adventure to go to the moon to ask the queen bee for some honey. And uh, yeah, and it's just kind of celebrates that incredible, passionate love that a mother has for her child that she will literally do anything. Yeah, it's really <laughs> the illustrations I love in that one. They're yeah. very, very beautiful. Yes, very sweet. Uh, a nice, fun one um, for kids also is Ask Hercules Quick by Ursula Dubasarsky and also illustrated by Andrew Joyner. And that's just a really sweet chapter book. Um, Hercules would want some pocket money to buy a magic set that he's seen in the window. So he puts up a sign. Uh, if you want odd jobs done, ask Hercules quick. And that keeps him very busy running around doing all sorts of things. I, lo I love that one. The words and illustrations seem to work really well yeah. together in that one. And Hercules lives in sort of a big apartment building, doesn't he? And yep. and to, when you get to see all the different inhabitants of the apartment building <laughs> yeah. and see inside their little flat, it's quite satisfying. Yes, yes. Lots of different animals live in that apartment building. <laughs> and I think another one that would be lovely to read at bedtime to this age group is uh, The Lonely Planet Myths and Legends of the World. Oh, yeah. uh, I think that's really gorgeous and that has two Australian or uh, Indigenous Australian uh, myths in there, one about Uluru and one about the Rainbow Serpent. And I think they're just gorgeous and, and it's very global. There's ones from all, all sorts of cultures and I think they'd be a lovely bedtime yeah. read. I'm a big fan of um, giving myths and legends anthologies to kids. I think they make mm. such special presents and they're real um, keepers and I think can really captivate kind of their imagination over a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll move on to middle fiction now. I am impressed with our brevity so far <laughs> in getting through these favourites. We'll try not to have the train run off the tracks <laughs> now. Um, so Middle Fiction, which um, we'll say is around about 8 to 12 years old. Um, I'll, I'll start with mine. Just I feel like I've been banging on about this book a lot to anyone that will listen, um, whether it's in my work like writing um, blog posts online or whether it's directly um, to parents and grandparents. But I really love Tim Flannery's Explore Your World, Weird, Wild, Amazing. There's a lot of animal books out there, there in is. kids' publishing. Like, there is. You see another one and you're just like, it's just another very beautiful hardcover animal book, but this one really stood out to me. Um, it was really interesting learning about Tim Flannery's career. I, you know, obviously he's kind of known as an environmentalist, and but you know he he started out being, and I won't be able to say a mammologist. Mm -hmm. He started out working with animals. Um, and so this has just got the most interesting facts and different types of animals from around the world. There's a lot of information in it without feeling like an overload. And the thing for me that makes this one stand out is there's very good, cute illustrations in it, but also Tim Flannery has all these little bits in it that's um, personal anecdotes about being on safari or oh, field trip. So you really, Yeah, it's so exciting. You really feel like, wow, this is like the glamorous, dangerous world of an animal scientist to be out mm. in the wild on a field trip coming face-to-face -face with bears and 
things like that. Yeah. So, and he's actually discovered a number of little insects and yeah, things. Amazing. He's, yeah, yeah, he's quite an amazing. Yeah. Man. So that's um that's one of my tips. Okay. Yeah. Um, I really loved uh, Insignificant Events in the Life of a Cactus by Dusty Bowling, which is a really quirky book, uh, great for those readers of, say, Wonder or um, Counting by Sevens, and is about a young girl who moves to a new town and her parents have bought a theme park in that town and uh, coincidentally she doesn't have any arms. And so she's very comfortable with that. It's no big deal. But, of course, she has to go to a new school. Yep. Uh, She's got to make new friends. And there's also a bit of a mystery at this theme park that she has to work out. And I just think it's handled really, really well. And she's such a confident, strong character. Right. Uh, and the sequel has just come out as well. Mm, I haven't read that one yet, but I've had more than more than one staff member tell me <laughs> that I should I should read it. The only other one I wanted to mention in the middle fiction, um, which I haven't read yet, that so I cannot say that this is a favourite yet. But the author Owen Colfer is a favourite of mine. Um, mm. I read all of his Artemis Fowl books, and he's got a. It's I guess it's kind of like a companion series yeah. or a, a spin-off called The Fowl Twins, and it's about Artemis's younger twin brothers. And it sounds very much in the same vein, you know, like a fantasy adventure story. Um, if it's like any of his other books, it'll be full of one-liners and wit mm. and very, mm. um, very, very funny, uh, funny kind of capers. So I will be reading that over summer and, and very much looking forward to reading The Foul Twins. Yeah, great. And I also loved uh, Sick Bay by Nova Wheatman, oh, which yeah. was a wonderful book on female friendship and uh, how difficult it is yeah. and how fraught it is at that age. I think it's a very common yeah. um, problem or, you know, something that occupies a lot of young girls' minds sometimes, but about two very different people who would never become friends normally at school but who do find uh, commonalities when they're both in sick bay for various reasons. Great. Excellent yeah. suggestion. So we're in the home stretch now. We'll move on to uh, young adult books. Angela, mm. what have you liked reading this year? Well, there's been a lot of great stuff, but I am going to go for the thrillers. There's a few great thrillers, and yeah. I just love a thriller for a sort of summer read. Yep. It's just, you know, something that you just can't stop turning the pages and um, one that I read a long time ago now, but it's in our best of the year, is Sadie by Courtney Summers. Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting. It's kind of a dual narrative. There's a, a podcast going on uh, um, about this young girl, Sadie, who's missing. And then you also have her voice about what happened and she's pursuing her uh, stepfather. Her, young, her younger sister has died and she is chasing her stepfather and she is a very intense full-on yeah. character <laughs> yes yeah quite a capable young person yeah, yeah yeah I um I have to confess to listening to quite a few true crime podcasts in my day so the the podcast transcript parts of this book to me ring really really true mm. like I feel like Courtney Summers has, has put in all sort of the tropes and the format of a true crime podcast and it does 
work really well um, with the sort of more conventional first-person narrative to kind of really mm. propel the, the yes, story the forward story. and make it really intriguing. Yeah. What other thrillers? Yeah, I Am Still you- Alive by uh, Kate Alice Marshall, which is a survival story essentially, and um, a lot of my colleagues have read it. I'm, I've read about 50 pages now, but uh, she's essentially her mum's died. She's been sent to live with her father in a cabin in the middle of nowhere in Canada and then there's a fire and he's gone as well. So this girl who's who's also weak from suffering a car accident, has lived in the city her entire life, has suddenly got to look after herself and survive and no one's going to come back to this remote location for months. It's a lot of teen survival going on these thrillers. I'm very worried for them. (laughs) And um, just one other one, which I haven't read but really want to, is Rules for Vanishing. And I can't remember who the author is, but my colleagues have read it and I noticed it came back today and there was a note on it saying, do not read after dark. Oh, you know, I actually did start reading that one and it is so, so excellent. Um, But I got too scared. (laughs) It's like... It's both real life and fairy tale creepy. It's yeah, it's okay. that those two things wow. are braided together in such an unnerving and unsettling <laughs> way. So if you're that kind of reader that can handle that sort of almost verging on on horror mm-hmm. creepiness, then um that one's then, for you. Then that one's for you. But I my um I should just probably not read alone in the house late at night. That's mm. probably the answer. Yes. <laughs> um, in YAI, I, I wanted to sort of um. I only had a car. I mean, of course, I had a billion favourites this year for YA, um, but I'll just mention two. One of them was Permanent Record by Mary H.K. Choi. Um, this kind of answers the question that I'm pretty sure a few people have wondered about in the course of their lives, <laughs> um, is like what it would be like to date a megastar celebrity. <laughs> so it's about this sort of slightly down and out guy called Pablo um, who works at a bodega on the night shift and he's, he's racked up this huge college debt and he's he's just feeling very low he's got low self-esteem he's not feeling good about this point in his life and all of a sudden this really famous pop star walks into his bodega and they strike up this romance and as you can imagine things do not go smoothly but I just found it really very realistic about romance (laughs) as realistic as it can be as realistic as can be I really felt like I was reading it as an adult going you know She's not lying to the teens about how difficult <laughs> romance is. Um, but also enough like sweetness and romance and, yeah. and lovey-dovey bits in uh, it. I so. thought the dialogue was really sassy and really it? smart in yeah. it. Yeah. Really fun. It's very a very, very smart and witty book. So that mm. was one of my picks. The other pick, just because, I mean, I cannot speak highly enough of this. I try to sell this to everyone in the shop. Um, it's called Aurora Rising. You would know it. It's by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. It is a wonderful science fiction book. It's got a massive, diverse cast in it. Um, they're kind of like the the lovable misfits or the outcasts um, in, the, in the academy and they – face off against a really formidable foe and have to learn to work as a team. Another one that's got really smart, sassy yes. dialogue in it. Absolutely. Yeah. And also just this, this <laughs> cast of really wonderful characters that are both mm. annoying and extremely entertaining and you're also rooting for them and you want them to succeed. Um, and also like a really creepy, I, I can't spoil it, but there's an aspect of this book about 
the enemy that they're facing that I mm. found incredibly creepy and mm. wonderful. Yeah. It made me look at my succulent garden a little bit differently. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that would be my other pick. I think any teen would love to get that one. Yep. 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 Wow. Well, I think that is plenty of reading for that summer. Was our very <laughs> abbreviated summer reading slash favorites of the year slash buy it for all the young people you know. Buy it for yourself. Buy it for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, up next, we've got a really wonderful interview with Will Kostakis, uh, whose most recent book, Monuments, is his first foray into young adult fantasy. Uh, and Angela spoke to Will recently, and um, it's a really wonderful interview where he talks about his career and getting started as a very, very young debut author, all the way through to his love of Terry Pratchett um, and how he puts family uh, into his his writing and his books. So we're going to hand it over now to Angela to interview Will Kostakis. to chat to Will Kostakis today. Uh, Will is an award-winning author from Sydney. He's written four novels for young adults and numerous short stories. His first novel was released when he was just 19. And his second novel, The First Third, won the 2014 Gold Inky and was shortlisted for a number of other awards. He regularly speaks to young people at schools and events around the country. And his latest novel, The Monuments, was released in September. And it's his first foray into fantasy. Welcome, Will. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Will, you were only 19 when your first book came out. I just think that's um, pretty amazing. You must have been writing it during high school. Um, Did you always want to be a writer? And and how difficult was it to be writing a book when you're still studying? I always wanted to be a writer and I'd finished my first draft uh, in year seven. Wow. And um, it <laughs> was twice thing. as long as Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. So <laughs> editing wasn't exactly my strongest suit. So as you do when you finish writing a novel, it's twice as long as Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix in year seven. <laughs> you grabbed a massive envelope and you send it straight off to Penguin. Aww. And I was like, great. They're going to send me a reply and say, we love you. Here's <laughs> a truckload of money. Yep. You're going to be famous. Yeah. So that didn't happen. <laughs> they got back to me six months later with a two-line sort of rejection letter saying, Dear Will, please never write again. Lots of love, Penguin. (laughs) So I was shattered. Uh, Mum was like, great, you can be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, But I kept rewriting it, kept sending it off, kept getting rejection letters until year 12 when, during a free period at school, I guessed every publisher's email address. And as I was writing a cover letter to introduce the book, I completely changed the premise but still wrote it as if I'd written it. And then two (laughs) publishers wanted it based on the idea but I hadn't actually written it yet. So I <laughs> sort of tread water for six months and eventually got a book deal with one of them. Wow. So, yeah. That's, but You were very determined. I was, but the big piece of advice I give to teenagers now is don't be in such a rush to get your first book out. So for me, yeah. it was like, you know, by the time I turned 19 and it came out, I was like, oh, I was a bit disappointed. I wasn't 13 like I'd dreamt. <laughs> and on top of that, no one's their best self at 19. Yeah. And I wasn't quite ready for the publishing process when I was 19. And my writing wasn't really where I wanted it to be. Like the difference between my first novel and my second novel, which was the first third, mm. is astronomical. So the big advice I give to especially young people who are looking to get published, 
relax, breathe, take the time to discover your voice, figure out what it is that you actually want to say. And the book you write in your early 20s is going to be so much better than that book you obsessed over in your teens. (laughs) That sounds like very good advice. I mean, you've got a long life ahead of you. Mm. You don't need to rush. Um, Who were some of your favourite writers of YA when you were a teenager? Uh, Favourite writers of YA? So... The big one that stands to mind, that comes to mind rather, it was Barry Johnsburg. I read his mm-hmm. The Whole Business with Kiffo and the Pitbull when I was in year 11. And I remember just being bowled over by how it didn't sound like I was being spoken down to. And mm. that's, but that's something that we see in Australian YA all the time. Our authors seem to have this wonderful knack for taking their readership really seriously. Mm. And you have, you know, authors like Melina Marchetta and Simone Howe as well was a really great one when I was a teenager. And I absolutely fell in love with their work. And so if I end up writing something that's half as good as what they've produced, then I will be incredibly happy with myself. Fantastic. Um, so who do you read these days? Do you still primarily read YA or do you read quite widely? I still primarily read YA and whenever I try to read adult, I always regret it. <laughs> I always <laughs> seem to read the one adult book that is just not good. And I always go straight back to the reassuring embrace of YA. Um, I read widely. My favourite author is Terry Pratchett. Uh, ah. I love growing up. I was obsessed with his fantasy mm-hmm. novels. Um, and you know, currently I read lots of Australian YA. So you've got Amy Kaufman, you've got Fiona Wood and a whole host of others, uh, Siobhan Plaza as well. I'm a big fan of hers, Lily Wilkinson's. and But really Australian YA in general is consistently strong and I'm never yeah. disappointed. Yeah. Um, and in terms of looking broadly, I've recently become a fan of John Corey Whaley. And so a big part of being an author is meeting authors going, yes, I've read your books and I totally love them and hoping to God they don't ask you something specific. Um, So I met John when I toured the US for the Sidekicks a few years ago. And we both looked at each other and said, look, we haven't read each other's work. That's fine. Let's just be friends. And I built up the courage to read one of his books this year, which was Where Things Come Back, which was his Prince winning debut. Mm-hmm. And it was sensational. And so I just finished uh, his follow-up, which is called Noggin, and it was differently good, um, but okay. equally good. So yeah. I'm really excited to get through the rest of his work. Oh, great. Well, that's a good recommendation. I actually have Where Things Come Back on my shelf and I've never quite got to it. So <laughs> I had just finished editing Monuments and I was like, okay, I'm going to read this, but I knew it had to be a really special book because – when I'm editing, I have this really critical voice in my head that's looking for the flaws. So the mm. first book I read after editing, I'm always really critical and I try to unpack it like I would unpack my own work. And for the first few chapters, I was like, what's he doing here? I don't get this. Like I had this, I was expecting to find flaws in it. Like I was looking at an early draft of my own work and it wasn't quite clicking for me. And then about halfway through, I made sense of it. And by the end, I was just in tears and overwhelmed and sending him really passive aggressive DMs. Um, But it was a really sensational work that it, it felt current. It didn't talk down to its readership, but it had that quality where it felt timeless. Mm. So yeah, Mm. it's well worth a read. Fantastic recommendation. Thank you.
Um, so in most of your books, not not as much in Monuments, but certainly mm. in, in all your other books, there's a strong emphasis on family mm. and parents and grandparents and your Greek heritage mm. and your family ties are obviously really important to you and um, something that you put in the books, whereas many YA books are trying to get rid of the family yeah. so that to give the uh, characters more agency. Yeah. But why is it so important to you to convey these family dynamics? I want to sit here and say, yes, it's very important to me because I'm reflecting, you know, my own experiences. And yes, that is mm -hmm. a part of it. But at yeah. the same time, I try to write stories where the parents are absent, absent and I just can't relate to it. Like monuments <laughs> started out with, okay, Connor's going to run away. He's going to be a missing person for half the book. And the mum isn't going to be present. And I yeah. read it. I'm like, there's something missing. This doesn't feel like, yes, it's more fantasy than my other works, yeah. but it really didn't feel like I had written it. And then yeah. once I threw yeah. in a mum character and they instantly had this banter and you had this relationship, yeah. I was like, oh no, this is, these are the kinds of stories that I want to write. Yeah. And look, I don't hide the fact that I came from a really small but potent Greek family. When I was young and my parents divorced, dad ran off to start another family because he was so good with the first one. And so <laughs> I have been shaped by my mom and my grandmother. The big reason why I wanted to be an author so young was because I wanted to save up enough money to help mom pay for things so Aww. that she wasn't sort of raising us on her own. And that was another sort of the double-edged sword of getting published so young was I got published to sort of help mom pay the school fees. And then the book came out and I was 19. I'm like, oh, I failed because... <laughs> You know, ah. <laughs> but anyway, like I always want to reflect those parts of my life because that's what made my growing up so special. And even the sidekicks, which was me intentionally playing down sort of the Greek part of my life, mm -hmm. still that Greek family sort of came through it anyway. So I feel like no matter what I write, whether it's about sort of more Anglo-Saxon families or uh, different kinds of families. I'm constantly going back to that well of family was such a big part of my life. I want to see it reflected in my stories, whether they are stories about grief, stories about going on, you know, world saving quests or stories about <laughs> meddling grandmothers who give their grandsons bucket lists to complete. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really charming moment in the book where he's, Connor's just been made a god, but he's mm -hmm. like, I've got to get home by midnight. My mum's going to kill me if yeah. I don't get home. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, let's talk about the monuments. It's about a normal Sydney boy who mm -hmm. discovers that underneath the schools around the city, immortal beings are in hiding, waiting for their moment to be released. I feel like this is a, a big shift for you mm -hmm. in your books. Um, and, and what was your, um, what was your incentive to write fantasy? And can you tell us a bit more about, um, your inspiration for the monuments? Um, my huge sort of inspiration and my motivation for writing fantasy when I've been writing contemporary for so long was I was exhausted. I had mm. just written two books back to back. One of them was, what if my grandmother died? And then the next one to follow up was, oh, hey, Will, remember that time your best friend died in high school? And so <laughs> I was emotionally exhausted. And especially when you write YA, you are expected, uh, contemporary YA, mm. you're expected to write your most personal novel yet. And it was getting to the point where I was depleted and I wasn't, I was still having fun, but it was emotionally exhausting. And I made a list of all the things that I loved as a kid. You know, those things where if I was a teenager, what were the things that I was obsessed with? I was reading Terry Pratchett. I was playing video games like The Legend of Zelda. And for those who aren't familiar with it, basically 
a kid with a big sword runs around slaying monsters, finding things hidden in dungeons and temples and things like that. And I was watching TV shows like Alias, which was, you know, getting into fancy dress and sneaking into places. And I thought, (laughs) is there a way that I can combine all of these things, but also combine them with the staples of a Wilkes Starkus novel? I had a plot line that I'd intended for the first third, but that I cut out because it was just too much, which was reflecting on, you know, the icky feeling about how we treated my grandfather at the end of his life, which was basically you go to a nursing home and we kind of forget about you Mm. Uh, to the point where after he passed away, it was like, oh, you know what? He was kind of dead in our minds for a few years before that. And which goes very against my whole family is really important thing. And (laughs) so I wanted to look at that contradiction. And this is a man I was named after and measured against and will Mm. continue to be measured against for my whole life. So I wanted to look at that, but in a way that didn't make that the focal point. And at Mm -hmm. the same point, same time, I wanted to write a book that celebrated being a young queer Australian, but without it being presented as this huge struggle to overcome. Mm-hmm. which is something mm-hmm. that, again, when you write contemporary novels and they're issues-based, you take the identity of the characters and you find an issue with that, and that's where your story is born. And so I was getting into the habit of finding these pieces of me, be they the Greek part or the gay part, and mm-hmm. asking myself, what's my issue with this? What do I have to overcome? Whereas I just wanted to write a fun story. So, yeah, that all that sort of stewed together. And I ended up with Monuments, which is three teenagers skip school uh, to find the ancient gods that are hidden under different Sydney high schools. It seems like it would be a very fun book to write. Mm. There's, there's so much going on. But it was it was so challenging. Like uh, the way that the industry tends to treat people who write um, spec fic and fantasy rather than contemporary is that, oh, the literary contemporary stories are so much more difficult to write, but it's a completely different skill set. And even though I was having lots of fun, every single page presented this really huge challenge for me. So while I'm glad I embarked on that challenge, I'm really angry at myself because I made my life so much harder for two years. (laughs) But I have a deeper appreciation of what specific writers do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot lot of world building that goes on, isn't there, that you Mm -hmm. don't need to do in contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. there's a great line from Connor during the monuments when he's explaining to the boy he's on a date with that he's now a god and he says, super gay with super strength. And his date suggests he's going to, uh, should get T-shirts made, which I think is hilarious. Um, and I thought it was fantastic to, um, to have a gay main characters in a fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that, that gay characters are a lot more common these days. Do you think that the publishing industry and the general public are more comfortable with LGBT characters now? Um, how do you think that's changing? I can only really speak for YA and this sort of shift I've noticed is the teenagers are more comfortable mm-hmm. and are far more comfortable. And the media that they're consuming, whether it's on Wattpad or online, or YouTube is very queer heavy, whether they are queer themselves or whether they just want to see a different kind of story. And so we are really playing catch up here. Mm. Like um, the world has changed, the way teenagers consume content has changed and the way that they identify in terms of sexuality has changed significantly. And YA is at the forefront of that because we are writing for this audience. Mm. And so 
I really think there were a few trailblazing authors that then made it possible for other authors like myself to come in and write in this space. And now we're seeing that publishers are starting to push this content more. I think booksellers are a bit more hesitant because you always imagine, I don't want to say the worst, but the more conservative purchaser, you don't want someone returning a book. And mm -hmm. we still have stories of people returning books for, oh, this, I bought this for my daughter, but it features two gay characters and that's inappropriate. I'm sure the daughter didn't have a problem with it, yeah, but there's yeah, still those sort of old world attitudes that we're slowly convincing that mm. people like me are human <laughs> and that our experiences are worth reading about. But, you know, that's something that is changing with time, but it's changing at a really fast pace. Yeah. Um, so I am waffling and I've completely forgotten your yeah, question. Yeah, no, it's great. But who who are the gay influencer or, or authors, YA authors that you thought of? I think the big one that really comes to mind, and I know this bucks the entire trend of own voices, uh, mm. but it's right in that Becky Albertalli, if it weren't for Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda, yeah. that book really normalised so much mm. and really opened it up to queer writers to then write their stories and to be seen as safe content for teenagers. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at Rainbow Rowell's yeah. Carry On as well. Yeah. That pushed open a lot of those doors. And these are women writing about men who are same-sex attracted, mm. which we, you know, um, hopefully there will come a time when straight women don't need to write those stories or straight <laughs> cis women don't need to write those stories. Yes. But yes. at the moment we're at the point where they are opening doors for, you know, queer people and queer people of colour to write their stories. So I think it's really great that the, there is a demand for these stories and teenagers are clamouring for it. Mm. Um, but there's still so much to do. Like I was, Monuments has surprisingly become really popular amongst kids in year five and year six, which while I made sure I stripped out any swearing in it so that kids could read up, it wasn't something I intended for. Mm. But I remember I was talking to a year six teacher and he had written a book that featured a beheading in the third page and that was appropriate for his class mm. but he asked me about the gay characters in my book and the first question was oh but is it really in your face <laughs> and i was like um about as in your face as a straight love story would be in yeah. a, and he caught himself and apologized but it's that there are those attitudes that we don't hold them, we have been taught them. Mm. And it takes a long time to sort of shake those off. Um, but we are in the process of shaking them off and I think we're a lot better for it. Yes, absolutely. Um, you spend a great deal of your time touring schools, speaking with young people around the country. Uh, the mainstream media often depicts teenagers as frivolous and obsessed with their phones to the detriment of everything else. I actually think they're much more engaged with the issues of the day than adults. In your experience, how do you see young people's opinions as differing from uh, those in the media and what do you think their greatest concerns are? Well, that's the thing and that was one of the big motivations for Monuments as well where I would talk to teenagers and I'd hear them and see them writing stories about combating homelessness and dealing with climate change and ending inequality and then I'd go home or, you know, go on Twitter on the train home and be like, oh, I hate the people who run this country, like, on all sides. Like, yeah. <laughs> it is 
I'm so full of hope when I see teenagers and I really wanted to imagine a world where teenagers had the capacity to change it because we're sort of set in our ways. We walk past a rough sleeper and we're like, oh, that's just the way it is. And that's the way this world is. Or, oh, we're not going to act on climate change. That's the way it is. Whereas teenagers, they have a really strong BS detector and they're like, no, this is wrong. We should be working to fix things like this. Yeah. And that's something that I really see. And there's that stereotype about them being connected to their phones who gave them their phones who told them <laughs> that to be successful or you know or gave them these apps that encourage them to get addicted to it you know and whose behavior who has been modeling that behavior the adults who use those phones in front of them anyway yeah and yeah. so i think we are as a society very attached to our phones but i really think that teenagers are using that to forge connections with people, to learn about people who are different to them, be it sexuality or gender or otherwise. And they empathize in a really astounding way. And we need to start taking them seriously and we need to start giving them a voice because this is going to be the world that they inherit and we shouldn't do what older generations did to us. We should try to empower mm. them as much as possible. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Let's get back to the book. <laughs> One mm. final question. Uh, so Monuments ends on a pretty big cliffhanger mm -hmm. and I'm sure readers are going to be clamouring to find out what happens to Sally and Lockie and Connor. Mm -hmm. um, what, how, how's book two going and when can we expect to see it? You should expect to see book two in the second half of next year. I'm very excited for it. There is that big setup and there is that tease, so you have a vague idea of what they're coming up against. But... Mm. What I've been stressing to everyone is you don't know the shape of book two and it is you should expect some things but expect to be incredibly surprised by where the story takes them. <laughs> Very exciting. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Will. It's been fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Readings Kids book podcast. We've loved having you. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast on, your, on our website where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to the e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, the Readings Monthly, on our website. Thanks for listening and this will be our last kids book podcast of the year. So we will, uh, we will see you back in uh, 2020. Yeah, catch up with you in 2020 and hope you get lots of great reading in over summer. Yes, enjoy your reading. See you later. Bye.